The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. He wasn't particularly interested in being dead, not completely. His nursing career resolved the paradox. Access to the vulnerable allowed him to manifest death without dying. He had learned to kill himself by proxy. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out with us during quarantine. We don't know what's normal or what will be normal, but you can count on us to still keep holding Book Club. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast. We definitely encourage you to read along with us, and if not, we certainly do the heavy lifting for you. Each month, we discuss a book that we've pulled off our Murder Shelf, Enjoy a snack and a bit of wine, of course. Today it's needed. <laughs> badly needed. Today is part two of The Good Nurse by Charles Graber, the true story of Charles Cullen, a nurse who is ultimately believed to be responsible for the death of approximately 400 patients entrusted to his care across nine hospitals throughout New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So grab a snack, a glass of Pinot, and skip down the rabbit hole of the whirlwind investigation into Charles Cullen. Let's go. Yeah. So the book is separated into two parts. Part one was our part one, and part two is our part two. So we're first introduced to Detective Tim Braun. He was a homicide detective, originally out of Newark, New Jersey. And after a long career with homicide in a tough city, he transferred to Somerset County, where he was offered better pay, less work, and even less danger. Sounds pretty suburban to me. Nice Mm -hmm. little cushy thing going closer to retirement. And this would definitely suit him until uh, he could retire. And it was on October 3rd, 2003, when Tim received the call from Somerset County Prosecutor Wayne Forrest. And whenever a case came into major crimes, it was Tim's job to supervise cases that came across his desk. They had a rotation in the unit, and next up was Danny Baldwin. And he was new to the unit. He worked formally for Essex County, but had been brought over to Somerset, mainly with high recommendation from Tim. And Danny joined the unit, becoming the only African-American detective working in the prosecutor's office for Somerset County. And so Danny drove out to Somerset County Medical Center to observe the autopsy of a patient named McKinley Cruz. And nothing was visibly wrong with Cruz, so the state coroner ruled it a natural death. However, less than a week later, Prosecutor Forrest asked him and Danny to go to Somerset to meet with their in-house counsel, Paul Middley. Yeah. So, Tim and Danny were told that over the past five months, there had been multiple unexplained occurrences in the critical care unit at the hospital, the sixth being that last Friday. Dr. William Kors, Senior VP, who we mentioned in Part 1, read off the names and dates to the detectives. May 28th, Mr. Joseph Lehman, June 4th, Mrs. Frances Kane, June 16th, Mrs. Jin Kyung Han, 
June 28th, Reverend Florian Gall. August 27th, Mrs. Frances Agoelda. Finally, McKinley Cruz. All but one was dead, and all six had exhibited life-threatening symptoms that resulted in abnormal lab results. Three words that Tim picked up on were insulin, glucose, and digoxin, which we call DIG. But he had no earthly clue what any of it meant. Like, why would you? He's a cop. He's not a medical person. Right. What he gathered from the Somerset crew was that there was virtually nothing for them to go on in their investigation other than the fact that these drugs showed up mysteriously in their patients' lab workups. So as we mentioned in Part 1, Somerset was one of the county's largest employers, and they also pulled some serious political weight. The board had two former state senators, with one being the father-in-law to the Somerset County Chief of Detectives. Not to mention, that same senator just happened to be very friendly with Prosecutor Wayne Forrest. Therefore, a problem at the hospital was a problem for the prosecutor's office. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've seen this happen in many cases. Yeah. Tim and Danny were left wondering why they hadn't been called in five months ago when the first deaths occurred. Then they thought, well... What the heck happened between last Friday and now? Their thought process certainly changed in a matter of days when it had originally taken months to notify anybody. Tim's first thought was that Somerset knew exactly who was responsible. So, who was it? And so, Tim and Danny, they didn't expect to have written out reports detailing the investigation with the hospital, but they definitely weren't expecting what they actually thought. A memo they received was dated July 25th, 2003, two months before they were given this, and there were barely five pages to the packet they received. One page appeared to be missing, and the other page was a cover letter. So, like, three to four pages with hardly anything on it. So much for inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. And they saw a comment from Mary Lund, the risk manager at Somerset, who said, quote, We agreed that there is nothing so overtly suspicious at this point in time either from the records or Mr. Cullen's demeanor itself that would necessitate a call to the authorities. So, they had a name, Cullen, and Mary and the lawyer Fleming apparently had interviewed this guy together, but no notes existed from that particular interview. Because you don't take notes when you interview people about mysterious deaths. Possible, I don't know. I don't know policy. (laughs) Mm. So, Danny met with Mary Lund that same afternoon, And although Cullen had been named in the memo, Mary was clear that they had interviewed all the nurses so that no one was singled out. So good, they're following up on everything. And Danny inquired further about where records were kept. Now remember that Pixis machine that we talked about in part one. And that was the one that the nurses used to keep track of drug withdrawal. The the drug ATM. Yes, the drug ATM. We only all had one of those. (laughs) Well, Mary advised that they check the records and nothing was out of the ordinary. So, hitting a dead end, Danny asked for photocopies of the records. And fresh news to him, the Pixis only stored records for 30 days. So, his conversation with Mary went cold. Hmm. However, she did leave him with one thing at least. Charlie wasn't the focus of the investigation, even though his name was the only thing in the memo they received. There was no person that they should take a look at. And his name was Edward Olaf. And a 
from the hospital. Maybe he was the one poisoning patients to get back to them. You know, they didn't have shit else, so they might as well follow that lead to see where it went. Yeah. I mean, you gotta start somewhere. So, our dudes go and they check out Edward a lot. And he comes back clean. No hits. The New Jersey Department of Justice has a database that follows the progress of criminal cases through the New Jersey court system. And Tim had used it successfully in the past to, you know, look up the the bad guys. Any suspects usually had some brush with the law and could more or less be in the system due to one thing or another. But a lot was totally clean. So Tim does the same thing now with Charles Cullen. And look at that. Two hits. One was for the criminal trespass in Palmer, Pennsylvania, that stalking incident we told you about. Twenty-minute drive back and forth three or four times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that crazy night, right? And the next was for a drunk driving incident in South Carolina. Now, both charges were over 10 years old, and Charlie had been a good boy since then, on paper. Yes, via record. Mm-hmm. So, Tim didn't have much else to go on, so he decided to give the Palmer police a call. And the woman Tim spoke with read off an underlined word in the margins of the file, something that registered with Tim. Dijoxin. Hmm. Danny immediately followed up with a call to the Pennsylvania State Police to speak with Trubert Robert Egan. Dig was the chemical that had been found in the blood work of a deceased patient at Easton Hospital roughly six years ago. Charlie Cullen had been working as a nurse there during that time and there was an investigation with the Pennsylvania State Police. They had pulled his file, but nothing else occurred. Talk about a big coincidence. Only one coincidence. Well, coincidence number two was found when they looked into Charlie's employment record. Hmm, pages on that. His first job was at a hospital in 1987 with the St. Barnabas Medical Center. Ironically, it was the first place Tim had held a job. Now, Tim thought a bit about this and remembered the days when he had donned his rent-a-cop uniform and how it felt that touch of authority. There was at least a reverence towards anyone wearing a uniform, and especially in the hospital. So imagine someone wearing scrubs or a white coat. That was unquestionable authority in the hospital. Charlie Cullen walking around in his nurse scrub. Yep. Don't question him. Yep. Feeling like it's armor. Yeah, exactly. Untouchable. So, so at St. Barnabas, since uh, that was our little coincidence there with Tim having worked in the same place, Tim put in a favor with uh, St. Barnabas, and he was able to get Charlie's personnel file. It was 22 pages. It's a lot more than the one they received from Somerset. Not two pages with a cover letter. <laughs> 22 <laughs> whole pages. Yeah, there's a lot here. But guess what? Hmm. Basic information, such as his W-4 vaccination records, a few charts with names blacked out, and just a few handwritten notes on unusual occurrence forms. Often those occurrence forms go into someone's personnel file, but they're there. But it was literally nothing truly out of the ordinary. Hmm. However, it also appeared that this file seemed wholly incomplete as well. And from the occurrence forms, they were able to deduce that Charlie didn't sign out a drug properly, possibly withheld medications from patients who needed them, and he had also administered unprescribed insulin. Ding, 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 ding. Woo-hoo! Um, <laughs> Graber noted that Charlie had essentially been caught in the act, but no one realized it at the time. Not the police, not 
about anyone I've seen Barnabas. Again, it's why this is so hard is that it sometimes looks like a medical error or an accident. So his transgression might have been fairly insignificant. They weren't reported as nurse practices, state nursing board, or the Department of Health. And everything was just kind of wiped away and took under the rug. As I say, I understand that this is his first hospital. It's early in his career. You know, I can kind of understand that. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Is there people wise we're talking about here? But medical mistakes are more important on the scheme of the universe than I gave the wrong homework assignment. Mm-hmm. Correct. <sighs> So it was around this time, just based on the paperwork that they got, where Charlie moved from St. Barnabas to Warren Hospital in Philipsburg. And while they got a little something from St. Barnabas, Warren Hospital said they had zilch. Zilch. Nothing. They couldn't find his record. The threat of a subpoena was made, and an hour later, a lawyer from Warren called Tim and Danny to advise that the personnel file had been destroyed. Why would they do that? We're, what, at nine... How many years are we at? I know sometimes places destroy records after seven years, but I don't think it has been that long or why they would even do that. Mm -hmm. But who knows why they destroyed the record? It's gone. And Danny also hit a dead end with Hunterdon Hospital as well. They stored their archive files with separate companies. So honestly, there's no need to destroy files if they're keeping them in-house somewhere else. But they didn't have Charlie's record either. Wow, that's really a coincidence too. Yeah, common files missing two completely separate databases, archives, and, hmm. So, anyway, Tim and Danny's next steps were to meet with lawyer Paul Natoli, the lawyer they saw previously when they were at Somerset Medical. So he's handling the internal investigations at Somerset Medical Center. He had been brought in on September 19th, roughly a month after the insulin incident with patient 5, and also a week before they had to report the incident to the Department of Health. Natoli was determined to keep the meeting as brief as possible and advised that they had not reached any definite conclusions. And once they knew they had a police matter, they had contacted the prosecutor's office. Throughout the course of the conversation, Tim and Danny were advised that, nope, no notes existed from their investigation. Because when you are doing an investigation, it is a no-note policy. Yeah. It says nobody ever doing an investigation. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. All right. Let's take a look at the one fact that Graber blatantly points out. This is the one fact that Graber blatantly points out. No lawyer doesn't take notes relating to an incident that could severely affect the reputation of the hospital or have them involved in serious malpractice lawsuits. You always take notes on this. Come on. Okay, so Natoli says they had taken no notes, five months of investigation, six highly suspicious deaths with many suspects. You don't take notes? You don't take notes. Hmm. I don't know what the hell kind of internal investigation they were running, but it was certainly one that they were looking to handle the matter internally and not tarnish the reputation or scare people away. Oh yeah, that's when you don't take notes. I take notes on everything. I take notes going to the grocery store. Come on now. (laughs) Meanwhile, Tim and Danny, who must be looking at each other cross-eyed, are spending time with state troopers of Pennsylvania, 
who are also investigating suspicious incidents in St. Luke's Hospital, where Charlie had previously worked as well. Yes. You know, they, they had everything that they needed for a solid investigation. Again, they had these reports. They had a dead body. You know, all the tenants that they need, just unfortunately, they couldn't conclusively link Charlie Cullen to anything. <sighs> and that's where this is so difficult. So what we do learn is that St. Luke's actually never called the police. And it was a nurse named Pat Medellin that tattled. She had seen Charlie taken out of the building by security, assumed that he was responsible for the mysterious circumstances on the ward. And she was actually told by St. Luke's administration that Charlie hadn't done anything, hadn't harmed any patients. And therefore, case closed. Nothing to investigate. She didn't like that. So she spoke with one of her friends who just happened to be a cop with the Easton PA Police Department. And that was in 2002, in uh, late August. And the story snowballed. The cop told his captain. The captain hot-potatoed it back over the coroner who spoke with Lehigh County District Attorney James B. Mark. Thank you, Pat. I know. Thank you, Nurse Pat. Thank you. She is the good nurse. Yes. <laughs> One of the good nurses here. Charlie is not the good nurse, but we do have a few good nurses here. Yeah. So St. Luke's staff, they were all interviewed. Anyone who might have been on the ward where any of the deaths occurred. There was consistency among many of their stories where they had noticed that people who were on the end were dying. And this was soon after Charlie changed out the IVs. One nurse said that they even witnessed Charlie sneaking out of a patient's room. One that he had no business being in. And that patient died soon after. Here's a fun fact for you. Graver wrote it for us. Charlie worked 26% of the hours on the ward, but was somehow on hand for 58% of the deaths in the critical care unit. Hmm. And when Charlie worked there, they'd averaged 20 to 22 code blues a month. That means somebody is dying. 22 a month. And when Charlie left, they didn't have a code blue for six weeks. Six weeks. Woo. Woo. Wow. There you go. <laughs> That's uh, some fun facts there. Oh, boy. Yes. Another odd thing that Tim and Danny noticed was that St. Luke's Hospital dealt with the Charlie Cullen problem in a way that created the fewest possible legal problems for themselves and left a scant trail of breadcrumbs that hardly anyone could follow. Har not a thing. Nope. Nothing to see here. Hardly any paperwork existed in the matter. Five months before Tim and Danny had picked up the case, the Lehigh County DA closed his eight-month investigation. That could only mean one thing. He didn't have a case he thought he could win against Charlie Cullen. There wasn't enough evidence. They had to get access to the Pixis, the drug ATM. They need the drug ATM. Yep. So Danny went to see Mary Lund, and he told her that Charlie had a criminal record, a less-than-savory work history where it was blatantly obvious he had been fired for nurse practice issues. He needed something from Mary. He needed the death records, especially the dates, of everyone who had died on Charlie's ward during the time he worked there. He also needed Charlie's work schedule. They had to play their trump card, Charlie Cullen was the strong person of interest within the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office for the mysterious deaths at Somerset Medical. Boom. Boom. 
need it. Yep. Now, we haven't heard from Charlie in a long time here. Exactly. Graber mainly wrote the story from Charlie's point of view in part one, but Graber gives us a little tidbit into Charlie's mind as the investigation ramps up. He knew he was going to have to abandon some of the ways that he was able to obtain drugs that he was using to kill. That was certain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, especially with how much the police were sniffing around. He just can't stop. That's how strong this compulsion is. The police are sniffing around, and he just can't stop. So he's got to come up with a new tactic. It's incredible. So even before the meeting with the lawyer, Fleming, we've talked about him, Charlie knew that some security measures for the drugs he required to commit his dirty deeds were going to increase. This only meant that his actions were in the public eye, and that actually pleased him. They were talking about him. Yeah, he's getting he attention. Favorite subject. He, yes, he is his favorite subject. The attention he was receiving by the police was a nice, warm blanket to wrap himself in. We know that Charlie never ordered Dig from Somerset again. His cancel records had not gone unnoticed, however. But there were other means for acquiring what he needed. And we'll find out soon enough. Yes, yeah. So, what can be more frustrating than having a suspect, someone you know is committing these crimes, that have spilled over the boundaries of the original crime scene into other states, other hospitals, with no hard evidence? I, I can't imagine anything else more frustrating. I was going to say, just knowing he's doing this. And he's still working. Yeah, he's still working. It's, it's insane. But Tim and Danny, they know they need more help. They need a task force. The red ball had spread across hospitals, even state lines. And a task force would help them accomplish what two people couldn't. More manpower and resources from other counties, maybe even the FBI. Tim knew that meant sharing the case. And we know what we know about jurisdictional sharing. So that would mean giving up solo possession of the red ball. And what's a red ball, you ask? We've mentioned it two times. It's a case that everyone just wants off their desk. They want it to be done, swept under the rug maybe, but just gone. Mm -hmm. And that's what they had, but it was much bigger than they could even imagine, and it couldn't be ignored. They weren't going to get help from other jurisdictions based on prosecutor force wishes, though. But more detectives were dedicated to the case from uh, the Somerset County office. They had four extra men to chase down information and leads. And so Danny began to call other state medical departments that Dr. Kors had advised that they were supposed to call given this type of situation. So when you have the sentinel event where other patients are going to die or could be affected, you need to call Poison Control, State Department of Health. And the first office he called was the New Jersey Department of Health and Senior Services. They said he needed a subpoena. So dead end for now. Hitting that roadblock, Danny and Tim took a drive to the New Jersey Department of Poison Control. I'm not going to lie. I love this doctor. He's great. He is freaking awesome. He's another hero in this story. Yes, Dr. Stephen Marcus. And that is who Tim and Danny are greeted by when they get there. And he screams at them, I was expecting you five months ago. Yes. I can imagine him just based on the book. He's like throwing crap around his office, clearing off his desk, and he reveals a stack of cassette tapes and a portable tape recorder. Everything. Every conversation that Marcus and Dr. Bruce Ruck ever had with the Somerset administrative team, that was recorded. Yes! I know. They're, yes. they're 
they're the good guys here. And the tapes revealed a very different picture than the one that Mary Lund and Dr. Kors had given them. Those weasels had never mentioned their interactions with poison control or the results of the calculations that Dr. Ruck had done when they were first contacted by Somerset. Mm. Tim and Danny also knew that Dr. Marcus told Somerset to call the police months before they were actually called. Now, either the Somerset team thought that they had more clout or that the police were stupid. But did they honestly think that no one was ever going to find out about this? I'm not going to say much more because a lot has changed since then. But Tim and Danny did say one thing that we absolutely agree with after their conversation with Dr. Marcus. You know, these are the guys, meaning Somerset Medical. These are the guys we should be going after. Those assholes right there. But it didn't matter. Tim and Danny were very conscious of the fact that Charlie was still working and he was still doing things that he had been doing for the last six years. You know, it is a relief to know that things did change after this case. Mm-hmm. I'm not letting Charlie off the hook. Oh, no. But these are the people that made change necessary. Think about their behavior. Mm-hmm. It's just terrible. All right, so what we need now is a definite homicide victim. Terrible sentence to utter, but it's true. They had six possible bodies, and out of those six, the Reverend Florian Gall seemed like the one to break the case open. However, they were going to need his body, and Danny decided to pay a visit to Lucille Gall, the Reverend's sister. Now, she was a former nurse, and she had often questioned her brother's care when it came to Charlie, but she had already accepted that his death was of natural causes, that the Lord had taken him. However, finding out that he had been murdered sent a shockwave through her system. Danny told her what they had, that the Reverend's digoxin levels were off the charts, and as a former nurse, she knew those levels required an autopsy. But Somerset had not done their due diligence. No autopsy occurred. Danny told Lucille of their plan to bring out the body, and we don't know for sure if there was any hesitation, but with her permission, they would hopefully be able to stop Charlie Cullen from killing another human being. But unfortunately, in the meantime, Ted Zizek was a man who worked as a volunteer at Somerset Medical Center. He was very well liked, friendly face when people walked in, and he became a patient in the hospital where he volunteered. Unfortunately, he was put into Nurse Cullen's hands. He was one of two patients that Charlie had that night. Amy Logren, who we touched on in Part 1, and who will continue to speak about in Part 2, was working with him, and she noted that her friend was in a mood, one where she would just stay out of his way. She knew him well enough, like, I'm not going to talk to him, and I'm just going to stay away. She knew he would speak to her when he was ready. And she gathered from their discussion earlier that that his home life was falling apart. He and Kathy fighting constantly. Remember, she always got some entertainment out of the Charlie and Kathy show. Mm-hmm. Kathy had even asked Charlie to move out. And, you know, he didn't really want to stay, but he also wasn't making any effort to leave. And we know that work was the only place that he felt he truly belonged. Engraver wrote that he was back and forth a whole shift, and that Charlie withdrew perhaps 40 times more drugs than any other nurse in the unit. But instead of putting orders together, he made separate orders, one for each club. And a knowledgeable nurse knows that this makes zero sense. And on October 21st, 2003, Ed Zizek, dead. 
a large spike of dig would be found in his blood workup. Upon review of Charlie's PIC-6 record, there was no dig orders, not even a detailed one. Well, our boy isn't stupid. He's figuring things out. On October 27th, Danny drove to St. Michael's Hospital, where he wanted an outside medical authority to read the charts on the Somerset 6. Needless to say, he didn't trust Somerset and wanted someone else to analyze the results. He spoke with Dr. Leon Smith, the chief of medicine at St. Michael's, who gave a very different interpretation of the results than they were first given in the beginning of October. It was Dr. Smith's professional opinion that all the patients at Somerset Medical Center had been given an external dose of DIG, meaning that the overdose was absolutely intentional. There was no doubt about it. With those results in hand, Danny had the information he needed to dig up a body, and he went with Tim to Holy Trinity Cemetery in New Jersey, where they disinterred Reverend Gall. Danny would be on hand to witness the autopsy. Do you know I have family buried in that cemetery? Oh, really? Yeah, going back to the early 1900s. Huge, huge, huge plot. This is definitely a good one to pull off the murder shelf, as I think both you and I know most of these places. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Crazy. Are you going to be buried there? Uh, no, we have another one a little bit closer to the family. On October 30th, the night before Halloween, Charlie was lamenting himself again. Poor Charlie. He was always misunderstood and alone. No one understood him. And he was on his way to work when he was pulled over by the police. Proof that the man was down on him. He was being persecuted. He didn't know anyone anything. He'd been good. Yet here they were, trying to impound his car. And for unpaid parking tickets, this was a mistake. He was pretty pissed off. But you know what? He was surprised when the officer actually kind of took his side. Maybe it was just a mix-up, but he still had to take the car. The officer promised to have the matter cleared up for him by the afternoon, and another police officer would give him a ride to work. How about that? Okay. Seems pretty nice to me. And yeah. Guess what? That was the story Charlie was told. Mm-hmm. This was actually a ruse that was cooked up by Tim and Danny. And while the car was out of Charlie's possession, they installed a radio tracking unit so that they could easily tell him and know his whereabouts at all times. That way... You know, somebody else dies, they can connect his whereabouts to the body. And they did it legally, with a court order. And you know what? Just like that, the officer did bring the car back to Charlie, just like he said. And it was a mistake. Charlie felt vindicated. And Grimmer wrote about how Charlie felt in that moment. He was a perfect illustration of how his misunderstood correctness manifested in the circumstances of his crazy life. He's certainly going to have to tell Amy about this. But however, he never got the chance because he was fired that night from Somerset Medical. Oh, thank God. Oh, yeah. Somebody finally got it. Alrighty. Oh, damn it. So Amy had no idea that Charlie had been fired until one of her friends gave her the news. She was hurt. She was angry even. She had stood up for her friend Charlie, protected him. She even took the blame for some of his mistakes. She felt she had failed him. Aw. He was out of a job and just earlier had found out that his girlfriend Kathy was pregnant. It was just more bad luck for Charlie. She called him from a payphone at work. He told her they had fired him for incorrect dates in his employment record, although he had been there for a year at that point. Somerset had embraced him. They had even used his face on a nurse recruitment flyer for bringing in prospective employees. Maybe he was a scapegoat 
for the investigation that resulted with the increased attention to the hospital after the death of Reverend Gall. Maybe? Or is that word scapegoat in Charlie and Cullen? What are those, those word bubbles? I feel like scapegoat might pop up in his own word bubble. He's a misunderstood victim. It's never his fault. Well, he told her more or less the same story that he told Adrian back in the day when he was fired from St. Barnabas. He is the fall guy. Charlie felt that someone from St. Luke's may have seen the recruitment flyer from Somerset and called it in. Like Adrian, Amy didn't understand. Who cared if his picture was on a damn brochure? According to Charlie, he was only being persecuted, just like everywhere else in his life. However, both of them agreed that he was a nurse and there were hospitals out there that certainly needed help. Sorry, but St. Luke's is pretty far stones throw away from Somerset. I can see why Amy's confused. And well, also, I think he thinks that because his picture's everywhere, he's more famous than he actually is. Oh yeah, in his mind, he was something to be jealous over. Nobody else's mind, but in his mind. As long as the public eye is on him, that's what he cares about. Well, people have to care about you and notice you to decide to persecute you. And so the law enforcement officers investigating the case were on pins and needles. This feeling of dread had kind of settled over the team. Especially since the case is now expanding in more hospitals, many of the detectives working the case all knew someone. Just how we know all these places where people are buried. They had a family member or a loved one as a patient in these hospitals that Charlie Cullen had previously worked. What if he had tried to do something to them? What if he was the direct cause of one of their deaths? It was definitely a truly terrifying thought, considering just how Charlie had gotten away with it from their perspective. Nothing could be proven other than just the thought he was there. He could have done it. And, you know, even this type of case, it was really unconventional for the team. They were still dealing with homicide, murder they knew well. They knew that people out there and what they were capable of. But this was so very, very different. There was an utter lack of motive or pattern they could find. So far, they knew that Charlie had a checkered work history, had been a part of three or four different investigations, on top of a troubled personal life. You know, his recent divorce, the estrangement from his kids, all these suicide attempts. Even with everything they knew, though, they still couldn't draw a direct link. So what were they missing? Yeah, it's got to be frustrating on their end of things. So Tim Brown was struggling to come up with other viable leads to go off of. What did he have to lose? He decided to call Cardinal Health, the manufacturer of the Pixis machine, and he dials the toll-free number, simple as that, and he asked if there was anything that he could do in terms of data recovery, as he understood that the machine held information for only 30 days, and he needed something from six months ago. What the rep told Tim was a nice bit of news. The Pixis machine saved every single piece of data that was entered into it from the precise moment it exited the factory. It has all the data in it. All the data. From the day the machine left the factory. Good news for Tim. Charlie's entire paper trail is on the Pixis machine at the Somerset Medical Center. The bad news? Mary Lund and the Somerset risk manager had lied. No shit. 
Yeah, they out and out bald faced lied. <laughs> what do you mean it only stores data for 30 days? Balls out lied. Wow. That's brazen. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Well, you can guess that Mary Lund wasn't thrilled to see Danny show up in her office, and he told her everything that he knew. That they could go through Charlie's record on the Pixis, and that he knew she lied. And the threat of an obstruction of justice charge. Oh, and I wore a fly on the wall. That got Tim and Danny the Pixis reports that they needed. All right, a break in the case. We got more pages. Hopefully it's complete. <laughs> yes, should be. Machines don't lie. Mary lied. To the detective, the printed pages look like Excel spreadsheets, rows and rows and rows of data. And they knew something had to be there, but now they need a trained eye to read the data. They need a nurse. A good nurse. Mm -hmm. Just like how they had no idea what dig or insulin or anything meant when they first heard those words. Yep. They did interpret her. Mm -hmm. So on November 4th, 2003, the detectives started doing interviews with nurses in the critical care unit at Somerset Medical. And Somerset Legal Team requested that all interviews be conducted in the presence of risk manager Mary Lund. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm okay. In their dismay, the assistant prosecutor agreed to the terms, which according to Tim, as you just heard our reaction, was a definite crock of shit. The interviews revealed some commonalities, though, felt by the nurses in the ward and how they viewed Charlie. Graver listed them. Quiet, a loner, a little bizarre even, yet they still felt highly of him, even some affection, perhaps. But with Mary Lund present, Danny didn't think that the nurses were being as upfront or candid as they could have been. You think? They yeah. look over at her before they'd answer questions. Probably starting to sweat a little bit, like saying the right thing. But other detectives had been doing the interviews, and Danny thought, you know what? It's my turn. I'm doing this for now. And so, Amy's turn finally came. And she decided she was going to let it all out. Danny got the immediate sense that Amy was different. He described her as an attractive white woman with blonde hair, blue eyes, prominent cheekbones. She told him that she graduated nursing school in 1988, therefore only a few years older than he was. And outspoken as always, she made it no secret that she did not like the investigation taking place at Somerset. She was worried about her friendship. There are even rumors that because of their friendship, that Amy must be involved too, and colleagues had even started to avoid her. They knew that she had come to his aid when she made a big deal about a new protocol for insulin after there was an accidental overdose that resulted in a patient's death. And this was her friend. They said that he was killing people. She didn't think that was right. But for one, she wasn't afraid to speak about the establishment either, even with Mary Lynn present. She also didn't glance at Mary when she spoke. The rumors about Charlie pissed her off royally, and she wasn't one to mince words and she just kept the ball rolling. Danny had a really good feeling about this one. He smiled at her, changed tactics a little bit, began to answer her question, which threw Amy off. When did cops give people answers? And then, with a stroke of luck, Mary Lund left the room. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, I don't know. But Danny turned tactics again and said to Amy, Listen, I don't know why, but I trust you, okay? And he slid the Pixis print out across the desk to her, which he advised was from Charlie's Pixis machine. 
the night that the Raven Girls had died. And what she saw on the chart literally stopped her cold. And she knew anyway that Charlie was guilty. Charlie was guilty. But looking after everything that they had gone through, they finally get this report. They have no idea what the hell is on it. She looks at it five seconds. Boom. Well, that's an educated eye. I, you and I would look at it and say, hmm. Huh. Yeah, that's the way I look at my tax return. I have no idea what I'm looking at either. God bless those people. Exactly. So what we know about Amy is that she is going to fight for the little guy. Charlie needed protection, and she defended him, even when he wasn't there to defend himself. Now, Graber tells us a bit about how, due to the sexual abuse she had suffered as a child at the hands of someone who was practically a family member, which is just heinous, Amy had a hard time trusting people. When she was a little girl, she carried her piggy bank to a local mental health clinic to see how many sessions she could buy with her savings. Imagine the looks on that person's face who received her at that clinic. Oh, oh, it, oh, just heartbreaking. So it took years to decide to thrive as opposed to being imprisoned within the confines of her own anguish. Now, this was the reason she chose to be a critical care nurse. They were dependent on her for everything, and their trust could inspire her trust in others. What she saw on the chart broke something in her. She trusted Charlie. She couldn't reconcile his personage with what the chart was telling her. But if this was true, he had heard patients on her watch, and that violation of trust was unacceptable. How disillusioning. What a sense of betrayal. Exactly. Danny told Tim all about Amy. She was tough, not to mention he was trusting his gut. Trust your gut. Yep. And they could trust her. So there wouldn't be anyone else from Somerset that they could depend on. And when Danny had handed Charlie's Pixis report over to Amy, she just kept repeating, Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Over and over again, she knew exactly what was on that record, and they needed her. And on November 24th, 2003, Danny and Tim drove to Amy's house. The first tidbit she gave them was that it wasn't just one specific drug order that they were looking for. It, it was all of them. Every record was deliberate. If they examined other nurses' records they would find that there would be about a tenth of the orders compared to Charlie's. She equated it to ordering a dozen eggs, one at a time. They brought up Dig. Amy advised that he would be ordering it like ten times a month. Was that unusual? Well, that was more Dig than she had ordered the entire time she had worked at Somerset. Tim and Danny also filled her in on the fact that they were no longer sharing information with the hospital. It wasn't a two-way street there. Not at all. The hospital was going to continue to cover its own ass and not help further in the investigation. They even had a hard time getting the Pixis records that she now had in her hands. Amy dropped a name the detectives hadn't heard of. What about Cerner? Who, who's this guy Cerner? Well, it's not a who, but a what? They had been investigating for months, and they had not been told about Cerner. Cerner is an electronic medical recording system that houses all patient information. 
anything you want to know about the patient while they were in the hospital was stored there. Pull up the patient's records, and you had a timeline of the patient's progress throughout the duration in the hospital. And it was time-stamped every time someone looked at a patient record. Yeah, and Tim and Danny didn't have a clue. No knowledge of the Cerner. No knowledge of the Cerner? Yeah. It's amazing what's housed in these machines. I deal with them on a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's absolutely amazing. The information, I'm sure it's probably even more technologically advanced than 2003, but it's absolutely amazing what you can do. Yeah, I have no idea what any of this is, so I'm just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. that's good, yeah. I'm glad. So the hospital you're entered in, and they can watch you from wherever they are. That's fantastic. Yep. While they're talking about all this, literally smack dab in the middle of their conversation, Amy's uh-huh. phone rings, <laughs> and it's Mary Lunch. My favorite person! Oh my god. She thankfully didn't know that Tim and Danny were there with Amy. But Mary's words of advice were, the police contact you again, you should tell them to speak directly with one of Somerset's attorneys. And if she decides to speak with them, she better have one of their lawyers present with her. We're breaking all the rules here now. Oopsie. But the conversation had definitely made one thing clear. That was the hospital was clearly only concerned with themselves, not the health and safety of their patients. Amy knew she had to keep her conversations with Tim Danny private. She didn't want to be fired on top of all this other stuff. She honestly wanted to help, and she did feel that it was partially her fault. She also needed to try to reconcile her feelings with the facts that were blatantly obvious in the Pixix record. Before Amy truly committed herself to helping Tim and Danny and assuming the role of a confidential informant, she told them that she had to speak with someone first, and that person was her daughter, Alex. If this went public, especially with Amy at the center, the fallout could make life fairly difficult for her child who's still in school. We know how kids are. It's hard. I commend her for that. I commend her for her honesty with her child because, yeah, there's probably going to be publicity about this. And you want her to understand that her mother is probably one of the most brave, courageous people. She is the good nurse. Mm-hmm. She really is. And when she sat down with Alex, she told her mom, well, if he's really killing people, then you have to find out the truth. And she's raised a wonderful daughter. So Tim came to be concerned that Mary Lund might be suspicious of Amy. Mary just, she's not my favorite person in the story. I lied before. She probably got reamed out by somebody that she left the interview. Yeah, probably. Get back in here. What did you do? You left them alone with Amy, of all people? Yeah, and Graber does say that Mary probably dropped about 20 pounds, according to Danny's observations from the start of the investigation. And she must have just been super stressed out about all this. I would be if I were a risk manager going through all this stuff. I couldn't compromise myself that way. I'd have to tell them the truth, and I would have been fired. No, but she is. She's clearly stressed out, Mary. does She does lose 20 pounds, and that's stress and anxiety. Yep. But she chose to not cooperate with the police, too. That's a choice. That was the choice that she made. It is. Again, being concerned that Mary is suspicious of Amy, Tim comes up with a strategy to protect Amy. They would focus the attention on her by asking each critical care nurse incriminating questions about Amy Walkren. Okay, questions that would shift the focus away from Charlie 
and thus preserve her identity as an informant. So they're going to make Amy look dirty, mm-hmm. which is kind of brilliant. Uh, as far as her co-workers were concerned, Amy is now the suspect of a murder investigation, which kind of sucks for Amy, but it's I also know. going to protect her, too. With that, Amy was officially registered as a consensual confidential informant, approved for audio incepts, both telephonic and on her body, and she was provided with a room in the prosecutor's office. La-di-da! That's friggin' awesome. Amy's first phone call to Charlie was when he had been out of a job for a couple months, and she wanted to check on him and see how he was doing. She was a natural on the wire. She didn't skip a beat when talking with Charlie. Even if he had been paying attention, not thinking only about himself, he wouldn't have noticed the deception. That's how natural she was. Yeah, she is made for this. She was upfront with him about why she was calling him. She was worried about him. They were asking weird questions at the hospital, and she wanted to warn her friend. She pushed him to call her back later on, setting up a meeting. She didn't want to lead him on, but acting motherly towards him, giving him that attention that he craved, and that is the bait. They needed him to come see Amy and to cross back into New Jersey. So even though she had a room in the prosecutor's office, Amy felt more comfortable doing the calls from her living room. This gave her more of an opportunity to relax when looking at Charlie's Pixis records. They asked her to concentrate on the Reverend Ball. And based on the record, Charlie was ordering drugs that were rarely used on the ward and ordering them in a ridiculous quantity. And what was more disturbing was frequency. What was he doing? He was ordering drugs over and over again, but he was also canceling the orders as soon as he placed them. Placing a new order, what you think is if you canceled something, you might have just accidentally did something. Right. So he was also making these same errors on a nightly basis, sometimes even hourly. Was he making them on purpose? And on the night of Reverend Gall's death, Charlie had ordered the dig, but then he canceled the order. So as far as the record was concerned, Charlie had never taken the dig out of the machine. And one night, Amy had an epiphany. She was exhausted doing double duty as a nurse and a CI on confidential informant, for those of you who might not get the acronym. And on top of making the three-hour drive back home after each shift, she was starting to make mistakes of her own, which is definitely something that she didn't need, considering that everyone thought she was the suspect now. Correct. So one night, she realized that she had punched the wrong order into the Pixis. And damn it, again, not what she needed. But what could she do? She hit the cancel button. And when she hit cancel, the drawer popped open anyway. Aha! Tried it a few more times to be sure. So that's how Charlie did it. In canceling, then he had access to the drug. So Graber goes on to relay that in theory, the Pixis drawer had opened for each of the cancellations that Charlie made, and he would have been able to take the medications without specifically having it added to his fixes. I guess a fun fact from Graber, too, is he canceled Dig at least 27 separate times during his tenure, and eight times in the month of February alone. For context, the other nurses combined made a fifth of those cancellations for the same drug. And after Ball's death, Charlie's Dig request stopped, but the lab results of patients show big overdoses. So, what else was he doing? Well, he's definitely doing something else. So, 
Amy had learned to deal with her past trauma in a number of ways. One of the methods that she used was a bit of self-hypnosis, where she could not only remember an event, but almost relive it. After another conversation with Charlie, she laid on the couch and she brought herself back to the hospital in her mind, and she pictured Charlie standing at the end of the hallway, as he used to do. It was a way out of the way spot close to the elevator doors, the furthest away from the nursing station, and then she knew. Charlie always relieved the pharmacy drug runner and brought the drugs into the med room to be restocked. Always being helpful, always making the coffee, always going out of his way. Well, How dare you drink my coffee and not say thank you? <laughs> well, by always being helpful, Charlie didn't have to touch the Pixis machines to get what he needed. He was helping to restock. So he could just take them. Yep. Now, Amy didn't want to think of herself as a traitor, but the stress was taking its toll. She was lonely without anyone to share the burdens of her undercover work. Yet, she started bringing a bigger purse to work. While the detectives were working on a subpoena to get the records out of the Cerner, she was going to help by printing out the records and bringing them. One night, the stress culminated in a migraine, and she decided to take a bit of Tylenol out of the Pixis. The nurses call it self-dispensing. She knew when she canceled an order, the drawer was going to pop open anyway, and this time she noticed something different, something that put a few more pieces of the puzzle together. The dig was kept right there next to the Tylenol, so he could place orders for Tylenol, not cancel it, and take the dig right out of the drawer, along with whatever drug he was ordering, assuming it was in the same drawer. Now, with that knowledge, she reviewed his Pixis record again, and that's why the dig orders didn't match up with any of the deaths. But guess what? The Tylenol orders sure did. Yeah. Was Amy the first one at Somerset to notice? I wonder. I well, think you wonder. I do. Well, there were other curious patterns. Medications that were ordered that were more common in the cardiac unit, but not the ICU. He must have been refilling his drawer when he took the pharmacy deliveries to make sure no one knew anything was off. The investigators had spoken to him about canceled orders of DIG, but what about all the heart medications? And that's far more sinister. Amy realized that Charlie was essentially bartending. He was mixing up drug cocktails. The combination of drugs always had a special biochemical effect. One pushed, the other pulled. It would be just enough to push a recovering patient over the edge to a code. Amy still couldn't get over the Charlie that she knew and the one who she saw on paper. There was an extreme emotional disconnect here, and that really, really bothered her. She considered herself a spiritual person, perceptive, had good people radar. And being near Charlie, she didn't see or feel any of that. But here it was on paper. She had gotten him wrong. And for Amy, another revelation that she never would have guessed was that this was the worst charting she had ever seen. <sighs> Wonder Charlie kept getting into trouble. And he was always so helpful that she couldn't help but defend him. But he was really shitty on paper. Like, what was he doing? But whatever he was doing, though, it wasn't inputting data. You know, he was always on his machine doing things. So what was he actually doing? And, you know, Amy actually had another dream about Charlie, and this dream hit her like a ton of bricks. 
And he's mixing up his drug cocktails, inserting those into the IV trays to hook up IVs to patients. It didn't matter who got them. Charlie didn't know who was going to get them either. And it's a lottery. A lottery. Just sending them out into the ether. Like grenades, as Graver described them. So I guess, is that is that premeditated? Yeah, it absolutely I is. Guess, even if there's not an intended victim? There are intended victims. They just don't know which one on this hallway is going to die, but somebody's going to die. You are premeditating a death. I would have really made a good prosecutor. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely premeditated. So what Tim and Danny were having trouble with, again, is motive. Sometimes that's what you need in order to really understand what's happening. They didn't have it. Danny actually had stacks of the papers that he got from Mary Lund with all the death records, Charlie's work schedule. He's trying to correlate everything to see if he could relate it back to Charlie's life to try to figure out just why he was doing this. But nothing made sense. And on the other hand, Tim was also doing his own research about the medical murderer type, or angels of death. And the FBI had specialists at Quantico who dealt with this kind of thing. And he broached the subject with Prosecutor Forrest. Hey, should we talk to those guys? Well, that was immediately shot down. Remember, our favorite, jurisdictional sharing. Yeah. And it ain't going to happen. Now, why would you want to speak to experts who might have insight into the person you're trying to arrest? Because then it takes away from your being smart and figuring it all out on your own. Oh, I know. He needs help. Well, Charlie Cerner records, it's the most incriminating piece of evidence that they have against him. Everything else, again, was wholly circumstantial. Nurses are only supposed to look at their patient. It was highly unusual for another nurse to view a record that wasn't theirs. But that's what Charlie was doing when he was on the Cerner machine. He's following patients. He's looking at charts. And on the night that Reverend Ball died, he wasn't Charlie's patient. But Charlie was in his chart, in and out of it, multiple times. Ha ha. Very circumstantial. I didn't know that was a particular rule. I guess that's common sense where if if it's not your patient, you don't look at the chart. But Don't you have enough work to do with your own patients? Yes. He was trying to find those grenades. It's not a smoking gun. Would it be a dripping hypo? (laughs) Probably. All right. So, I... (laughs) I'm trying here, right? Make a medical analogy. Hypodermic needle people. Yeah, yeah. All right. So November 29th, 2003, the toxicology report for the reverend came back. Dig, dig, and more dig. Infiltrating internal organs. It was everywhere. Yeah. I didn't want to bog us down with all the dosages, but it was through the through the roof. Yeah. The coroner updated the cause of death to digoxin toxicity with the manner of death as homicide. The task force was now meeting twice a day, but they still need that proof. The Pixis demonstrated it was certainly possible for Charlie to have gotten the drugs he needed, but it isn't definitive. Frustrating. Possible. Could have. Might have. But we can't prove it. All right. They're going to need him to confess, and they're going to need Amy to coax it out of him. So Amy calls Charlie on recorded line. Tim and Danny need her to set up a meeting with Charlie, because if he's going to confess to anybody, it is most likely going to be to her. 
So on the call, she appealed to his sense of being needed, being wanted. It sucks at the hospital without you, Charlie. Couldn't you find the time to maybe come see me? Can we catch up? I just want to make sure you're all right. Amy urges Charlie to call her back, and it almost seems possible that no amount of coaxing is going to bring Charlie to Amy. There's no sense of identity or purpose for him when he's not working. The detectives needed to try a different approach. And that approach was a little bit more forceful, I think, than they intended. They decided it was time to bring Charlie in for questioning. They didn't outright arrest him, but they told him that he is a target in their investigation of the mysterious deaths that occurred at Somerset Medical. They wanted to ask him some questions. And bizarrely, Charlie is used to this type of thing at this point, having been a suspect in previous investigations. He's like, sure, I'll go with you. Both Tim and Danny remained super chatty during the drive, keeping the atmosphere loose, hopefully making Charlie seem a little bit more comfortable. When he seemed comfortable enough, Good Cop would flip over to Bad Cop. We all know that game, Good Cop, Bad Cop. Mm -hmm. And after Tim and Danny drove off with Charlie, members of their task force served a warrant on Kathy, Charlie's girlfriend. They were searching the premises for controlled substances that they thought that he might have stolen from the hospital, considering all those canceled medical medications on the fixes charts. Unfortunately, the search turned up nothing more than a few cold medicine tablets. So shit, that's all for nothing. Yeah, it didn't work. Where the hell are all those medical... Sorry, I was trying to clear this box. (laughs) So where did all those heart medications go to that Amy saw on the charts? But the interrogation with Charlie lasted for six hours when they finally got to the police station. Charlie began talking about himself, which was a topic that he thoroughly enjoyed. And just like all those interviews that we saw in part one, he didn't show any surprise or concern when the detectives told him that they knew about the allegations at St. Barnabas, St. Luke's, Warren, Hunterdon, all the hospitals. And he still didn't deny anything. He said he had never been charged. The hospitals had feared him. This is not the expected behavior of an innocent person at all. Mm-hmm. And when asked about the Pixis report, Charlie said he didn't need to explain any of his actions. Well, if he canceled the drug, why didn't he follow up with the correct order? They weren't appealing to Charlie's sense of self. He didn't have to answer to them for anything that he did while nursing. But when they started in on him, and how he'd be viewed by his children if they found out he was getting off on killing people, well, that was unacceptable. He couldn't handle a tarnished version of himself in his daughter's eyes. And by the time they called it quits, Charlie was reduced to tears, repeating over and over again that he couldn't talk about it. Not necessarily a denial, but definitely not a confession. And at 2 a.m. the next morning, they dropped Charlie off. And Tim was royally pissed off. He actually threatened Charlie. He said, the next time you see me, you're wearing handcuffs. Charlie just nodded and turned and walked away. And for Tim, that wasn't fuck you enough. They had picked Charlie up without enough evidence to hold the arrest. And the case was most likely going to be over if Charlie lawyered up. Yeah, that did not go well. They were hoping, but... But what did happen was, Charlie called Amy to tell her the big news. All the commotion that was happening, that he'd been interrogated by the police. He was picked up outside his home. His home was searched. His life is so exciting. It was. It was all about him. He had all this attention. Suspected a murder investigation. 
And, but it was so like, cool. Bragging about being the prime suspect. Exactly. Now, Amy wasn't home, and he got her answering machine, and he left her a message. And in his excitement, he forgot to tell her the new job search websites had really worked, and Charlie was going to be a nurse again. Oh, my God, he's going back to work. No. Oh, my God. No. No, why am working? Oh, God, those vulnerable people. Oh, my God. So... Tim ends up going behind Prosecutor Forrest's back, and he makes that call to the FBI. Stellar moved him. All right, he left Danny out of it, as he didn't want him to get in trouble for going against orders. Probably a good idea. Yeah. Serial killers like Charlie weren't a red ball for them, because it's their job description. This is what they do. This is their bread and butter. However, as Tim explained Charlie to them, It was quite unlike the medical-type killers that they had profiled in the past. So here are some facts. 99% of medical murder serials are women. They usually kill their patients to be a hero, to end their suffering, to show mercy. The women, they like to create a medical emergency and then rush in to, at the last minute, you know, inject somebody with something, adrenaline, to restart their hearts and save children from the edge and the brink of death. Sometimes they might fail to do that. Oopsie. That's the goal there, to be seen as this, oh my God, the super nurse, the super doctor, you know, whatever the case may be. The male medical murderer is rare, like 1%, and their motivations were usually based on power or control. Now, Charlie doesn't neatly fit in these stereotypes, And the FBI said he seemed to be more like a male actor who might be a little feminine. Remember, he did Mm. rush in at every single code. Right, he's straddling the patients and, you know, trying to to be the hero. The emotions weren't fitting. Right. Can you remember? He always felt like he's struggling to turn on the proper emotion. Like, he doesn't know how to feel. So while he's going crazy on top of these patients, giving them CPR. What emotion am I? What? what? Yeah, it's not a sexual thing for Charlie either. So, Tim breaks the news that they'd already brought him in and that he had kind of screwed up here. And, you know, they acknowledge his stupidity because, you know, they're going to tell you that's the FBI. They can do that. So, the FBI was usually brought in before this kind of thing had happened. But, you know, Tim had wanted to do that and he was shot down. So, they ask him, do you have any hard evidence? And he says, no, it's all circumstantial. Well, all right. Well, these cases are really difficult to work. And the FBI explained to Tim by kind of equating it to a bank teller who gets caught embezzling at the bank. They don't get fired because they don't want their customers to know. So they just keep moving them from bank to bank to bank. In Charlie's case, they move them from hospital to hospital. So they give voice to Tim's worst fear regarding the case. You know, these type of killers don't usually confess. There's never really direct, definitive proof of their crimes. They know exactly what they're going to do, and they know that they can get away with it. They advised him that it's okay if they don't solve the case. He's doing everything he possibly can, but it's going to be really difficult to solve this. Nice of they're saying, it's okay if you fail. Yeah, it's okay. You know, he'll keep going from hospital to hospital. It's really tough. Oh my gosh. You know, that he knew he had messed up, you know, taking this run at Charlie, and he's feeling really bad about that, and 
really, it's kind of depressing at this point. Yeah. But, but then Amy called. She had a voicemail from Charlie, and he was excited that he'd found a job at a hospital called Montgomery, which is now the Einstein Hospital in Norristown, PA, and he is on their training schedule for December 8th. I couldn't figure out where Montgomery Hospital was. When we first read this, I was like, oh, God, that's Montgomery County, which is where we both reside. Mm-hmm. And it's like, where the hell is this hospital? And then I found an article that said that Einstein had bought out this particular hospital. And I was like, oh, crap, when I used to go to work, I drove past this hospital every day. Yep. So if we were in a, a car wreck or kidney stone or something weird happened, we could wind up right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fun times. So Tim dialed 411 in Norristown and he found himself on the phone with the hospital vice president, Barbara Hannon. Tim advised he's calling as a private citizen, but introduced himself as Sergeant Braun of Somerset County Homicide, knowing that was certainly going to be effective in uh, getting her attention. Mm-hmm. He didn't know if what he was doing was exactly legal, but he told her they needed to pull their new hire off the schedule immediately if they wanted to save lives. And Charlie received a call that day telling him not to bother coming in. I don't care if it was legal or not. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. He's breaking all the rules. I hope he's not worried about his pension. (laughs) But, you know, just like Charlie said when he was the scapegoat, I would sacrifice my pay in order to help my patients. They're the same at any rate. But Tim's Mm. Tim's a pretty good thing by doing all the things that he's doing behind other people's backs. Well, he's the good cop. Yeah, someone needs to do something. Yeah. He's doing And so news about the suspicious deaths at Somerset were about to hit papers. Someone had leaked the investigation to the press, but luckily Charlie's name wasn't out yet. But, you know, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. And only building a case on circumstantial evidence, as we said before, it's very difficult. You need to involve the suspect, try to get them to talk. Maybe tell you a little bit of a confession, but if not, you hope that they trip up and give you what you need. And later on in trial, when those lies are fully splayed out, the lawyers tear them down one by one, destroying all reasonable doubt. But if a suspect lawyer is up for any of that, it's over. So again, we need Charlie to meet with Amy, and he's finally ready. And she needs him to confess, and we need it done quickly. So it's going to hinge on Amy here. A lot of pressure there. So the goal of this operation is simple. Get Charlie over the state lines and get him to say something incriminating so this way they can collar him and also not have to deal with the extradition process from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. Now, in getting mic'd up, Tim and Danny see Amy's pacemaker scar for the first time. Now, they have no idea how precarious a position they put her in considering her health, and they told her she could bail immediately, which is wildly considerate of them, considering everything that is hinging on this conversation. They did not want her to die of stress. But she'd come this far, they were close, and it was something that that she had to do. And Charlie and Amy settle in on an Italian restaurant called Carabas. They are yummy, by the way. It's a chain, and it's yummy. It is good food. They're Olive Garden on crack. Yeah, they are. And I like Olive Garden, too, so... You know, I just miss restaurants. Hey, yeah, I miss restaurants in general. Yeah. Tim and Danny had to hand it to her. She was choosing a restaurant where they actually wanted to eat their food. 
and uh, she has an appetite doing that. Hey, good for her. I'm amazed. I get nervous and I kind of pick. She's going to chow down. Tim thought she was the most fun CI he had ever worked with, and if she wasn't a nurse, she really would have made a great cop. We can't do her justice. No. You have to read the book, and I really hope that the movie, when it comes out, really does this whole entire story. Well, it really is. She's such a hero here. It is just amazing. So Charlie and Amy pull into Carabas, and it's closed! It was actually a good accident, though. If Charlie suspected anything, switching things up on the fly would certainly alleviate any doubts. So they wind up in a new place called The Office. And as they pull into the parking lot, Amy is steadying herself. Inside, she is screaming. But as soon as she hopped out of the car, it was game on. She put on her best face, calls out to Charlie, Hi, sweetie! And she lays it on thick. She I does. Know some people who use, like, the sweeties and the honeys, they miss it. It just comes naturally for her. I can just hear her voice. So... Again, just without reading the book, it's very hard to capture this conversation that's about to go down. And But we're going to do our best to try to capture it without reading it verbatim to you because there's so much. Amy asks for a quiet booth. Yeah. Good girl. Good girl. Because we know Mike's probably not the best. Right. I think they put off like uh, narcotics or something. <laughs> they want to get as much as possible. And they sit down, they slide in, and Charlie excitedly begins telling her how they were talking about him on the radio. What do you mean? Well, it was on the drive over. They were talking about me on the radio. Not by name, but, you know, he'd also been following in the papers. And based on all the descriptors, Somerset Medical, Mysterious Deaths, Male Nurse, he knew it was about him. So he soaked all in. This was a lot bigger than that recruitment flyer. Oh, yeah. He was in everything. And, you know, Amy, she just wants to get to the truth. And a lot of, like, shooting the shit here, too. But also, she's really trying to, like, zoom in because she's nervous. She knows that she needs to get this. She wants to get to the truth. So Amy just really starts asking and pointing questions to get the ball rolling. Was the rather in your patient the night he died? Obviously, she knows all the answers to these questions, but the goal is to get him to say things. And Charlie said, well, yeah, I had him in his patient when it all went down. And he plays fairly aloof where he tells her that the police showed him his signatures and some of the medication charts, but he can't remember every time he signed for something. People make mistakes. She asked him about the canceled big orders. Well, yeah, I did that, and I had to cancel it. She playfully calls him a dumbass. You dumbass. Mm-hmm. Charlie, Charlie had brought the New York Times in with him to show her the story, again, to soak up more of her attention. And she does really put on a good show. And she starts to read the article and out loud, and she gets to five other hospitals. We turn serious here. And she says, Charlie, is that true? Five hospitals. Well, yeah, he's been a nurse for a while, you know, people make mistakes. And he somehow always ended up being the scapegoat, the fall guy. Can't, can't you see that? Well, Charlie, five hospitals? Like, this looks really bad. Are you capable of doing these? He remains very still for a while. And when he spoke, it was very slow, almost incoherent. And he said, as far as abnormal lab results, I was. The other time that was dig, that was at Warren Hospital. A patient that died 24 hours after I had been her nurse, someone said that I injected her something. Now that was direct. I don't think I understand what I just read. Do you understand what I just read? 
So I'm sure Amy has no idea what the hell Charlie's talking about. But he tells her that was around the time he passed two lie detector tests. She applauds him, egging him on to continue with the story. Her cell phone goes off, and that's a signal for the detectives to change the tape. She's got more nerve than I do. You can picture this, and you get a good sense from the book. It's like she's trying to ask him these questions, get him to give her a yes or no answer, but he's always going around and saying, oh, well, there was this, and then this happened. They accused me, but I didn't do it. I didn't really tell him anything about it. Yeah, well, this happened, but it was just a mistake. So Amy's nerves are getting pretty thin, and she's really not sure how long she can keep up the charade of the banter and the normalcy of the tone that, you know, she's using with Charlie. And she feels that her heart is just going to explode. I mean, how much more can she take? So she gets up to go to the ladies' room for a break. And when she comes back, she sees Charlie is kind of slumped over, like a turned-off robot. And when he sees her coming, the reanimation is startling. He's back. He picks up where he left off. He speaks openly to Amy about the allegations and the circumstances of each location, providing details of how patients passed on. And Amy stops him, and she says point blank. Charlie, I need to ask you something. Are you capable of doing these things? Now, he sags and he deflates. And she asks again. Because that's what I want to know. Are you capable? She's asked him this about six times already. He still hasn't answered the damn question. Nope. So now he sits at the table, quiet. And when he starts to talk again, it's this halting monotone. He doesn't really want to talk about it. And Amy feels that she's losing him. So she starts praising him, talking about him, how great he is. So that way, he can start talking about himself again. Again, it's his favorite topic. She tells him over and over just how much she cares about him. But what's being described in the papers, it's happening again and again, and Charlie is always the suspect. And she says, I see you, Charlie, and I'm not stupid. Nobody gets investigated over and over again for no reason, Charlie. You know I know that. She keeps pushing in and pushing him to the point where she's pretty much crying at the table and yelling at him. Charlie, this is me. I'm here, Charlie. I'm here because I'm your friend and I love you. And I'm here because I know you killed these people. I know it. And he just stares at her. Graber describes the scene through Amy's eyes. She feels a wave of cold static. And then she sees the switch sees his skin go slack and buttery, watches his jaw reshape and his spine shift, and Charlie's eyes begin to drift apart. The right eye unplugs and drifts lazy to the edge of the table, reading the darkness there, pacing kinetic track back and forth and back and forth. The left eye watches her. The wax head twists and speaks. The voice is low and toneless. Amy had never heard this voice before. It does not remind her of anything human. It's blankness, a horrible nothing. Charlie is not Charlie. If she did not know him, it was only because there was nothing really to know. That hits the nail on the head, really, when we talk about his lack of emotion. There's really nothing there. 
Remember when we were talking about Ted Bundy, some of the witnesses, Liz, Molly, Carol Durant, they saw his eyes go black. They saw that face. A lot of victims who have survived attacks, survivors, will talk about that look that comes over them. And I think this is consistent with what we're seeing here, what Amy saw. And I don't know if there's more or less like two different versions of this because I know with Molly for Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. she said that she saw something reptilian, mm-hmm. like there's something there, but it's not Ted. Her friend's not there anymore. Exactly. Something, something else has replaced it. But here, there's nothing. Like yeah. no, nothing else is here. It's just like an empty shell of a human being. Yeah. But there's like that otherworldliness, something odd that comes over them, something not entirely human. It's like that consistent description. It's always a little different because they're all individuals, but it's just freaky how that commonality pops up. But it it makes sense. The nothingness, I guess, in this case makes sense to me almost. And the fact that, like, that's why he didn't care about anything that he did. Yeah. Because there is nothing really to care about. Not when he's in that state. Yeah. Just blank. So Amy hears all this, but the mic isn't working really well. Oh. The detectives can barely hear a thing. Tim knows it's not good, so he makes the decision to move in on Amy and Charlie. And at that moment, Amy bursts out of the front door of the restaurant. She collapsed into the two of them, like just sobbing. She just kept saying his face was awful. It's not the Charlie that she knew. And he kept saying the same thing over and over again, talking in almost like a weird low growl, one word at a time. He said, just let me go down, baby. Oh, God, how creepy. And, And weirdly enough, Amy signs off on these statements, and then she's gonna head off to the office Christmas party. Oh, man, she's resilient. She absolutely is. And, you know, Graver says, like, Christmas without Santa, if she's not there, she's going to let everybody down. You know, she's not going to do that. Nope. She's spent so much time keeping people out. It's time for her to let loose a little bit and kind of reconnect with her friends. And she's obviously very confused after meeting with Charlie. She's sickened by him and what she saw and the monster that he basically turned out to be. And guilty that she hadn't felt it sooner and scared by what she saw across the table. And honestly, I probably would crave the same thing. She craved numbness. And at the office Christmas party, there's plenty of beer. Yep. And so luckily, her behavior at the Christmas party is typical Amy. So when Anna takes some shots at CEO Dennis Miller, especially when he spoke about how well their establishment had handled the medication irregularities, no one took her seriously. She ended up even on the dance floor with this guy, telling him she knew he was a liar, but the music was up too loud, so he didn't really hear anything unfortunate. Oh, well, fortunately or unfortunately, but wow. Yeah, we handled everything so well. Good job. Yeah, so drunk, confused, exhausted, she just kind of bursts out into the night, just like, what the hell? Well, Tim and Danny pick up Charlie. Just as he's leaving the office restaurant after his confrontation with Amy, and they drive him down to the prosecutor's office and begin to question him again, he needs to be broken down. 
he wasn't in control anymore. All of this is about control, and he is not in control anymore. They knew he had been investigated repeatedly and had gotten away with it every single time, and there were no consequences for Charlie Cullen, but they were going to make sure that there would be. They knew they couldn't make him talk, but they needed him to say something before he got a lawyer. So they tried to appeal to him in terms of what would his children think. Do you want them to know that this is what you do? After hours of tarnishing his image or making him out to be a sick sexual fiend getting off on murdering people, he broke down. He was reduced to tears. They even asked him if he committed murders with Amy to get her off the hook. Today, the only difference from the previous shakedown was bringing Amy into the mix, because this is essentially the same thing that they had done previously that didn't work. Right, but this time Amy said she knows that he did this. And so his friend support, that's yeah. that one leg from the stool is missing now. So so he's on the floor crying, curled up in a fetal position, stammering, I, I can't, I can't. Now, it's still not a real confession. They push him for nine hours until they got a call from Prosecutor Forrest to shut it down. And it, it seemed that it was over. The, the news had broken Friday afternoon regarding the patient murders committed at Somerset Medical. Phones are ringing off the hook at the prosecutor's office. There were at least 175 tips, inquiries into possible victims from concerned family members. Before the weekend was over, they'd have one more chance to take a run at him before he went in front of a judge to be arraigned. Tim and Danny made up a story for Amy so Charlie didn't catch on that she was involved, that she was highly emotional, hysteric, that she was a loyal friend with friends in government and she could help Charlie. They watched him as he signed his Miranda warning before letting Amy go in and see him. Amy is up. And Amy did feel the man that she saw sitting in the waiting room waiting for her wasn't the entity that she felt in the restaurant a few nights ago. What she saw was her friend Charlie, and he looked like a scared little boy. And she felt shame. She was the one who put him here. She was still somehow his friend. So you can imagine that in her from well that she's feeling. Mm-hmm. But the truth was undeniable. He showed her the scars on his arms from past suicide attempts. He tried at least 20 times in his life. He admitted failure to them all. And Graber said it concisely. He wasn't particularly interested in being dead, not completely. His nursing career resolved the paradox. Access to the vulnerable allowed him to manifest death without dying. He had learned to kill by proxy. Charlie had always been in control. And no one can make him do anything, like confessing. But he could do something. He could give Amy the truth. What had he always really wanted? That was to be a hero. And he could be a hero for her. God, he had learned to kill himself by proxy. What a statement. So, we know that Charlie didn't keep a written list of his crimes. No mementos. He never even told anyone the whole story out loud. He started talking at 6.15 a.m. on Sunday night, stopping only for food and coffee and toilet breaks. He spoke for seven hours in a hushed, level tone, patiently pausing mid-sentence when Tim had to flip-flop the tape, then picked up again exactly at that point. He used words like past 
expired or died. But Charlie didn't murder or kill. They only needed one confirmed death, and Charlie had given them 40. And that concludes part two of our series on the good nurse by Charles Graber. Tune in next time on Second Cast, where we'll find out Charlie's fate, how things have changed since he was arrested, and discuss more male medical serial killers to see how they stack up with Charlie. You definitely don't want to miss that one. And also, pick up your copy of Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by Daniel Grand and get reading. And if you don't know Daniel Grand, he's an amazing author that writes fluidly with extreme detail. It's a touch different than our usual murder shtick, but without the FBI, we wouldn't have a classification system for serial killers. You'll definitely not lack for murder, mystery, or intrigue in this truly gripping tale. So join us as we take a step back in time to the last remnants of the Wild West, where wealthy members of the Osage Indian Nation are being killed off under mysterious circumstances, which sparks an investigation with the FBI. I am really looking forward to a really good mystery. Thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. We love your feedback. And until next time, murder bookies, happy reading.